1954, a very thought-provoking novel was published. Written by William Golding, later to be awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, it was entitled Lord of the Flies. For those who haven't read the book or seen either of the two films that were made of it, the story features a group of schoolboys who find themselves alone on a deserted island in the Pacific after the plane in which they're travelling is shot down. Within a very short time, the veneer of civilization is stripped away and violence becomes the order of the day, led by a boy named Jack and his group of hunters, who ironically are members of a church choir. The initial focus of their aggression and fear is a creature that they call the beast, which they attempt to hunt and kill. However, their only real success is a pig, whose head they cut off and stick on top of a pole. Eventually, one of the boys, confronted by the pig's head, now surrounded by flies, hence the title, Lord of the Flies, hears, as it were, him saying to him, there isn't anyone to help you, only me. And I'm the beast. Fancy thinking the beast was something you could hunt or kill. You knew, didn't you? I'm part of you. Close, close, close. And I'm the reason why it's no go. Why things are the way they are. And two of the boys are savagely murdered by the rest. And further killings are only averted by the arrival on the island of a naval officer in uniform who brings an end to the hostilities. Or does he? For the naval boat in which they are rescued then resumes its part in the war in which the boys' plane was originally shot down. Never read it, I commend it to you. I had to study it for English Lit when I was a student. But the message of the novel is obvious. As explained by the author himself, this is what William Golding said. The theme is an attempt to trace the defects of society back to the defects of human nature. You get that? The theme is an attempt to trace the defects of society back to the defects of human nature. Now, that was 50 years ago. And there is very little evidence against what Golding propounded. Genocide in places such as Cambodia, Rwanda, Sudan have only reinforced Golding's pessimistic view of human nature. Perhaps the most alarming was, of all was the recent events following the hurricane in the southern United States. How rapidly law and order broke down following the hurricane. Even in the most advanced nation on earth, civilization is only skin deep. Human nature is defective. But think for a moment. By saying that human nature is defective, we imply that there is a norm by which it is judged and defined as defective. If, for example, I go to the hardware store to buy a bucket and discover when I fill it that it has holes in the bottom, I will return it down the road, if I got it from Gray's on George Street, as defective. But supposing the shopkeeper says, well, sir, Yes, this bucket does have holes in it. Some do, some don't. 
Why not use it as a watering can? Well, I would tell him this is nonsense. If I'd wanted a watering can, I would have bought one. I want a bucket by which, which by its very nature should hold water. This one has holes in it, therefore it is defective. Now think a little more carefully. What norm of behaviour then defines some human behaviour as defective? If my moral code says, love your neighbour, but yours says, eat your neighbour, can I say that your viewpoint is wrong or defective? Only if you have some objective, external standard by which you define what is defective and what is not. Now, I'm coming to the point, all right? The Bible has a word, a group of related words, that describe that external, objective standard of perfection. The word is the word holiness, or holy, H-O-L-Y. This has no connection with the holes in the bucket, which I just thought of it. The word holy, in Hebrew, means to be set apart as different from the rest. Different, distinctive. And holy is a word, in fact, it's the word which describes the character of God. What is God like? He is holy. He is holiness and perfection. Now, the way that you express perfection in the Hebrew language is by repeating it three times. If you know the Bible, you may remember the story way back in the first chapters of the book of the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah has this fantastic vision. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in all his glory and smoke filled the temple. And he heard these angelic beings calling to one another. And they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And faced with such perfection or holiness... When you see that God is holy, what it shows up is your defects in stark relief against the burning light of God's holiness. So Isaiah cries out when he sees the holiness of God, he doesn't say, wow, that's impressive. No, he says, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He really thought he was finished. Be burnt to a crisp. Because of the defects in himself. The Bible has a word for that. It's the word sin or sinfulness. And these defects have been seen in every human being who has ever walked on this earth. And every person here exhibits those defects. Everyone except one. Holy is also a word which describes Jesus, what he is like. Right at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, in one of those four Gospels that describe his life, Jesus appeared in a synagogue, the place where Jews met on the Sabbath day, on the Saturday, their place of worship, like we meet in a church building. And present in the congregation was a man possessed by an evil spirit, 
And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And those people who walk most closely with Jesus recognize this difference, this otherness, this, this frighteningness about being with Jesus, that he was different. On one occasion, one of his followers, a man named Peter, follower of Jesus, uh, Jesus did an incredible miracle. It impressed him because it was a miracle of a miraculous catch of fish. He'd been fishing all night, caught nothing. Jesus said, just throw your net on the other side. And this enormous load of fish came out. He didn't say, wow, how did you do that? When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. See the point? He saw the holiness of God and the character of Jesus. And he was afraid. Didn't want to face up to it. Now, God's amazing plan for human beings is not to burn us up with his holiness. Now, God's plan for people is that we should be holy. Like him. Like Jesus, his son. Many years later, that same Peter wrote a letter. It's in the New Testament. It's called 1 Peter because it's the first one we've got. We don't know whether he wrote a lot more, but that's the first one we've got. It's called 1 Peter. Uh, And in his letter, he wrote to these people from a a non-Jewish background, Gentile people who'd come to faith in Christ, and he reminded them of what God had called them to. I don't know what you think, if you're a Christian, what did God call you to do? What was, was his plan for you? Here's what he said. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy... So be holy in all you do, for it is written. Brackets, Leviticus 19, verse 2. To God's covenant people, Israel. Still applies now. God's not changed his plan for human beings. Still the same plan. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. And so this evening, this is kind of introductory, as we continue our series, The Conspicuous Christian... And the evenings, we come to what is the defining characteristic of, of the followers of Jesus. It is holiness in a world where anything, everything goes. And what we need to focus on is just n- not what we are to be. I've already said that. We are to be holy. The big question you'll be asking, if you understand this at all, is, okay, how? How can you be holy? How can you be distinctive? How is it possible? And to help us to do that, we're turning to a passage in the Bible that we're going to look at for a few moments together. A letter which the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in a Roman province called Galatia. And he addresses this subject. Now, it really is important to have a Bible in front of you because all I'm going to try and do is explain what the Bible says as best I can with God's help. So it's Galatians 5. It's page 1172 if you have a pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just reach over and get one from someone else. It's important that we all follow the same text. And here's our subject for this evening. We're going to read verses 16 through to 26. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. 
and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. That was written by Paul, but we believe it is God's Word. Now, let me just briefly give you an outline of what I want to look at and then we'll look at it together. In this passage you have two contrasting, two contrasting ways of life. Did you notice that? I want to describe the first one as behaving naturally. Evidenced by what Paul calls the acts of the sinful nature. You'll see those in verses 19 to 21. The only other alternative lifestyle is what I want to call living supernaturally. And that's evidenced by what Paul calls, in contrast to the acts of the sinful nature, the fruit of the Spirit. We'll look at each of these in turn, and then we'll conclude with the response we need to make, which I want to call acting decisively. Okay? So let's try and follow that through with God's help and see where we go with it. First of all then, behaving naturally. I've chosen the word naturally because human beings sin naturally. They don't have to be taught to sin. It comes naturally. Anyone who has ever had a child or can recall being a child will know that this is the case. It's called the doctrine of original sin. Whenever I talk to new parents after a week or a month or two, I say, do you now believe in the doctrine of original sin? They always say, yes. Uh, King David, after committing adultery, followed by conspiracy and then murder, finally confessed his sin to God in a great psalm. It's Psalm 51 in the Bible, the Hebrew hymn book. And he put his finger on the root cause of his problem, on our problem. This is what he says. He says to God, surely... I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Like David, I am born with a sinful human nature. So, I am not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. Now, Jesus made this clear in his own teaching. He was constantly in conflict with the Jewish religious leaders of his day who believed that the way to sort out human problems was cosmetic. You dealt with the externals. And Jesus said, uh-uh, the problem lies a lot deeper. Here's his diagnosis in Mark 7. Jesus said, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. It's not dirt, dirt. external things. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. And in Galatians 5 we have a similar list of the same kind of 
things. Human defects. The Apostle Paul calls them the acts of the sinful nature. They come from within. This is how people naturally behave. Literally, it means the acts of the flesh. It doesn't mean literally your flesh, it means your nature. And Paul writes, he says, such things are obvious. You just look around you and you can see them in your own life and the life of other people. So he lists these observable effects. If you look at them, there are 15 here. I don't plan to go through all 15 in detail. The NIV divides them into little sections, four sections. There are sins connected with sex to begin with. Not that they're more important, but they're the ones that he starts with. Sexual immorality, the word there is pornea, from which we get pornography, refers to immoral sexual relationships. Impurity is a word which refers, refers to moral laxity. Debauchery is sexual license taken to extremes without any restraint or concern what God or others might think. Uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Colin Adams spoke on, in our same series on purity in a world obsessed by sex. Uh, I encourage you, if you haven't got the tape or listened to it, to download the message. Uh, the next section concerns sins related to religion, idolatry, which we dealt with in our series in the Ten Commandments in the mornings, is the worship of false gods or idols. Witchcraft is the use of evil powers for your own ends or to harm other people. Then follows a list of eight social sins, which speak for themselves, connected with other people. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. And the final section contains two sins which relate to the excessive use of alcohol. Drunkenness, the loss of self-control, through using alcohol. Orgies relates to uncontrolled behaviour with others, also on the influence of alcohol. Now, this is just a sample list, because he says, and the like. In other words, it's not an exclusive list. He says, those are the observable, they're the kind of things you can see in any person. This is natural human behaviour, and he says, notice carefully, there are consequences if you continue to live like that. See what it says? I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if all human beings behave naturally like this, this is bad news. How can anyone inherit the kingdom of God if this is what we're all like? The good news is that there is an alternative way of living. So secondly, notice what it means to live living supernaturally. Jesus once had a conversation with a very religious Jew, a man whose name was Nicodemus. And that conversation actually focused on this same topic. How do you get into God's kingdom? How do you inherit or enter the kingdom of God? How do you find favour with God and make sure that at the end of your life you go to be with God instead of the other place? And much to the surprise of this man who expected Jesus to tell him a list of rules and regulations which he could follow to make sure... Jesus told him that the only solution was a radical one which involved a new nature. This is what he said. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. It's a hackneyed phrase, born again, but it actually comes from Jesus. He said, it's such a radical thing that you need to be born again. Poor old Nicodemus couldn't understand. He said, what? You mean I have to go back into my mother's womb a second time? How does that work? Jesus said, no, no, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. Jesus answered, John 3, 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. 
Only those who have been, in the words of Jesus, born again of the Spirit of God, are able to live differently. Only those who are inhabited by the Spirit of God can be holy in a world where anything goes. And Paul says to these folk in Galatia that he writes this letter to, he says, that's you, because you're different. Notice how he says it, it's a lovely phrase, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus. People who've transferred their ownership. Earlier in this letter, in Galatians 3, 2, he reminds them that when they put their faith in Jesus, they received the Spirit. remember once, many years ago, my closest friend I shared a flat with at university. We were very close friends. He was an outstanding athlete and we used to talk about the Christian faith. He had no interest in Christian things. And he said to me one day, what exactly is a Christian? How would you define it? I said, a Christian is a person in whom God lives by his spirit. And he immediately responded and said, well, I'm not one then. Absolutely right. I still pray for him and still comes up here on big business conventions and rings me up and we get together and talk. But he got the point. Being a Christian is something supernatural. Because when you come to Christ in faith, if you've never become a Christian, it's not just God wipes out the past and says, right, you're forgiven. It's not just that God looks to the future and says, right, you'll inherit the kingdom of heaven, you'll get to heaven when you die. He says, I'm going to do a dynamic, radical change in you. I'm going to put my spirit within you. Now, the Bible calls the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit. So, here's a question. This doesn't need rocket science or a theological degree. If the Holy Spirit lives within a person, what do you think the effect will be? Yep. Holy living. That you'll become holy. So, in contrast to the acts of the sinful nature, he says there are nine characteristics of what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. Notice he says the fruit. I'm not a gardener, as most of you know. I'm a hopeless gardener, but... I do know that fruit takes time to grow. It gradually emerges. Got lots of apples under our tree in the manse at the moment. They appeared over a long period. Well, quite a long period. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast to the acts of the sinful nature, God comes to live within you by His Spirit, and it begins to make a change in your life. You begin to produce fruit. And he gives nine character traits. We don't have time to look at all of them. Our previous pastor, when I was on my sabbatical, preached right through this passage. I commend the tapes to you. He also wrote a book on it. And get the book by Reverend Derek Prime. It's an excellent book on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, There are nine gifts listed here. You can divide them in different ways. The first three relate primarily to God, love, joy, peace. The second three relate primarily to others, patience, kindness, goodness. The last three relate to yourself, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, these are a character portrait of what Jesus was like. The pattern of holiness. And so, if you're born again of the Spirit of God, children of God, you begin to display the family likeness. So that people begin to say, isn't he like his father? Like the father, like the son, through the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, here, it's Take stop before we come to the third point. Are you then behaving naturally or living supernaturally? There's only two choices in life. Only two ways of life. And the only way to tell is not what you say, it's how you live. If there is no evidence of growing fruit of the Spirit in my life, those nine things there, 
I don't mean overnight, you wake up after you become a Christian, suddenly you're a saint. Well, you are a saint in biblical terms, but you know what I mean, that you're perfect. I mean, is there growing evidence in your life and my life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Can I say this? If there is little or no evidence of that, then it raises a question as to whether the Spirit of God really does live within you. You see, the great problem is you come to a church like this and you think, well, that's the way you're supposed to behave, is it? And you think, I'm going to try and be more loving. I'm going to be trying to be more self-controlled. I'm going to be trying to be more joyful, like they seem to be. Here, you know, I'll clap a bit loud, you know, jump around a bit. You, know. you can't do it. It's impossible. Only God can do it through you by His Spirit. The contrasting evidence is the acts of the sinful nature or the fruit of the Spirit. That's why Jesus said at the end of His great Sermon on the Mount, He said, by their fruit you will know them. He said on the last day there will be many people who say, Lord, Lord, and they'll list all the things that they believed in and did and He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's the fruit that counts. Now, if you are not a Christian this evening, let me speak to those of you who are not yet Christians. If you're not yet a true Christian, there is no way you can live supernaturally, for only the Holy Spirit can make you holy. It needs a supernatural work of God to change human nature and to make you a different kind of person, to produce in you the spirit, Spirit's fruit. Instead, you will live naturally and the acts of the sinful nature will be seen in your life. And let me tell you this, the longer you go on, the more they become ingrained in your life. All your worst traits become magnified as you get older because they become ingrained in your character. Sad to say. You have no choice in how you live. The Bible puts it this way. It says you're a slave to sin. Can't do what you want to do. You may say, I'd, I'd love to do that, and I've tried, but I just can't do it. Exactly. You need God's help. You need to come to the cross and turn from your sin. And God's agreement is He will put His Spirit within your heart and give you a new way of living, supernaturally. But if you are a Christian, let me speak to most of you here who would claim to be Christians by God's grace. Only if you're a Christian, you have a choice in the matter. Notice what Galatians 5 verse 16 says. It is a challenge for Christians. He's writing to Christians and he says, So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Now, it is possible for you to be a Christian, yet to fail to live by the Spirit and instead to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. If this were not the case... If living by the Spirit were an automatic process, if becoming holy just happened, then Paul need not have written these words and similar words in most of, all, most of his other letters in the New Testament. So, for all of us who claim to be Christians, how can we resist the desires of the sinful nature and instead encourage the growth of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and so become holy in a world where anything and everything goes? That's our conclusion as we come to point three, which will take a little longer than normal conclusions, but this is the important bit for those who are Christians, all right? Here's the third point, acting decisively. Some time ago we discovered we had a wasp nest in the manse, just under the floor by the back door. 
It had been there some time. Occasionally we'd seen a wasp flying around and we thought nothing of it. But when Telewest wanted to put a cable under the floor, they stirred up a hornet's nest. These wasps weren't very pleased by this. We had to call in the council and pay £54, I think it was, to eradicate the problem. Now, when you become a Christian, God comes to live within you by his Holy Spirit. You know what happens? You stir up a hornet's nest. The desires of the sinful nature, which you largely followed without compunction, you may have felt a bit guilty at times when you went over the top, but basically you just lived your life your own way. Something happens that stirs up a hornet's nest within you because you've got a sinful nature and you suddenly discover there is a conflict in your life. That is why maybe you've just become a Christian recently and you think, I became a Christian and it's harder now than it seemed to be before. Of course it is. (laughs) You've got a battle on your hands. And that's what he talks about here. You have a conflict situation. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you don't do what you want to do. So how do you live by the Spirit? How do you resolve and win the battle? So often I find as Christians, when we struggle with sin, when we strive for holiness, we always look forward in the hope of some new truth. I'll guarantee this. If I was to write a book with a title, which has been written before in different ways, in several places, The Secret of the Victorious Christian Life, it would be a bestseller. Because everybody's looking for the secret of the victorious life. Some truth which will liberate us. But notice when Paul writes... When the New Testament addresses this situation, when he tells those who belong to Christ Jesus, he tells them, don't look forward. He says, look back to what happened when you became a Christian. Do you see that? Look back to what happened when that decisive change of ownership took place in your life. The Bible calls it being transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. You see, the battle was won at the cross when Jesus Christ not only paid the penalty for our sin, but also broke the power of sin. When we came to Christ, when you come to the cross, it means identifying with Jesus in his death and all that his death means. Not only was our sin nailed to the cross, but he says also the sinful nature with its passions and with its desires. And so the first key to winning this battle, to acting decisively, is that we need to see that it means death, death to the old nature. Look what he says in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Crucifixion was a pitiless, painful, decisive form of death. One of the most painful ever devised. So also our rejection of our old nature... We must spare our old nature and desires no mercy. It is a painful and costly exercise. It involves decisive action. The old theologians used to call it mortification of the flesh. don't hear a lot about that. Not a bestseller. If you produce a book called The Mortification of the Flesh, you won't sell anything. You'll be on the remainder section very quickly. Now, that decisiveness took place when we became Christians, identifying ourselves with Jesus in his death by crucifixion. Not literally, of course. We're not nailed to a cross. But as it was, we die to our old nature and all our desires. 
But it is at every subsequent point of temptation and conflict that we need to take decisive action. That is why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2, I think verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Jesus himself said, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up the cross daily. It is a dying daily to the desires of the sinful nature. Um, John Stott writes very helpfully, the first great secret of holiness lies in the degree and the decisiveness of our repentance. If besetting sins persistently plague us, it is either because we've never truly repented or because having repented, we have not maintained our repentance. Sad to say, many people come to Christ on a very superficial basis. Repentance is a deep work of God where you turn from your sin and you turn to God. John Stott goes on, It is as if having nailed our old nature to the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of its execution. We begin to fondle it, to caress it, to long for its release, even to try and take it down from the cross. We need to learn to leave it there. When some jealous or proud or malicious or impure thought invades our mind, we must kick it out at once. It is fatal to begin to examine it, to consider whether we're going to give in to it or not. We've declared war on it. We are not going to resume negotiations. We have settled the issue for good. We are not going to reopen it. We have crucified the flesh. We are never going to withdraw the nails. And unless you go through such a death and see that part of it, you'll never experience life. We talk about life and death matters. For the Christian, it's always the opposite way around. It's a matter of death and life. Not life and death. Because death comes first. Why? Because Christ died first. What happened? Three days later, he was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. So when you identify with Christ as a Christian, you identify with him in his death, but you also identify with all the benefits of his resurrection. Jesus was raised to life by the power of the Spirit, and those who have died with him now, now live with him in the power of the Spirit who lives within every person who belongs to Christ. So, the second half of this is not only death of the old nature, but life in the Spirit. If you were here last Sunday for the baptism, I'm really sad to say I was on holiday, I missed it, it was a wonderful service. But baptism is a symbolic picture of what this means. When you come to Christ in repentance and faith, and in other letters written to the Christians in Rome, Paul says, notice the words in Romans 6 verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Do you see the point? The person goes into the water and says, I'm saying goodbye to the old life, death. Come out of the water, I'm saying welcome to a new life lived in the power of the Spirit. And as you begin, so you must continue. Every day. Verse 16, where it's translated, live by the Spirit, is literally in Greek, it says, walk by the Spirit. Step by step, you walk in the Spirit, in the new life of the Spirit that God has given you. John Stott comments helpfully again, as therefore we crucify the flesh, repudiating what we know to be wrong, so too we must walk by the Spirit, setting ourselves to follow what we know to be right. So the Holy Spirit there begins to prompt you to stay on course. The lovely phrase here in verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It's being sensitive to what God says to you. When you step out of line, the Holy Spirit gives you a nudge and says, that's not really right. Get back on track. 
keep in step with the Spirit. Not very interesting. That it's a term kind of used from the military of marching in step. I don't have time to look at it, but it struck me again reading this. How much of this is to do with Christians being holy together? Keeping in step with the Spirit together. It's amazing to me that he writes to these Christians. We idealise those first Christians. And here's Paul writing and he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. He didn't write that unless that was a problem. It's not just a personal matter to be holy. It is a corporate matter for God's people. That's why you need to belong to a church. Because it's in relationship with other Christians that you work these kind of things out. That's our vision as a church. To impact our world as a distinctive community of believers transformed by the power of message of Christ. Conspicuous for Christ. So here's the second question. Not only have you put to death the old nature, have you seen the decisiveness of that, but are you living by the Spirit? If there are some Christians who have never understood what death of the old nature means, then there are others who have never appreciated what life in the Spirit, life in all its fullness means never avail themselves of the Holy Spirit's help. Let me conclude with a story I read recently told by Dr. Bill Bright, who's now with the Lord, of Campus Crusade for Christ. It's about a famous oil field called Yates Pool in Texas. Let me read it because it's a lovely story and it's very brief and I conclude with this. During the Depression, this field was a sheep ranch owned by a man named Yates. Mr. Yates wasn't able to make enough on his ranching operation to pay the principal and interest on his mortgage. So he's in danger of losing his ranch. With little money for clothes or food, his family, like many others, had to live on government subsidies. Day after day, he grazed his sheep over those rolling West Texas hills. He was no doubt greatly troubled about how he could pay his bills. Then a seismographic crew from an oil company came into the area and told him there might be oil on his land. They asked permission to drig a wildcat well and he signed a lease contract. At 1,115 feet, they struck a huge oil reserve. The first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. Many subsequent wells were more than twice as large. In fact, 30 years after the discovery, a government test of one of the wells showed it still had the potential flow of 125,000 barrels of oil a day, and Mr. Yates owned it all. The day he purchased the land, he received the oil and mineral rights, yet he'd been living on relief. A multimillionaire living in poverty. The problem? He didn't know the oil was there even though he owned it. And here's his conclusion and mine. Many Christians live in spiritual poverty. They're entitled to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and his energizing power, but they're not aware of their birthright. So, let's live by the Spirit, being holy in a world where anything, everything goes. Let's receive